perfect will of God. How can we go wrong with that? It won't necessarily be easy, but by far the best. So this is, this is the command, the invitation here in verse 1. To fix our gaze on a clear destination, we want God's good and acceptable and perfect will for us. We're not going to drift into it. It's a decisive commitment to say, God, I'm trusting, I'm going that way. I present you my entire life. That's what he's calling us to. That's what he's calling each one of us to. And this, this is a, the tense of the verb is a, not necessarily a once for all thing, but is a decisive, it's not necessarily a daily thing, but a decisive direction. Lord, from now on, I'm going that way with you. We may have to repeat this on occasion in our lives. I think at times big things happen that sort of just throw everything um, into confusion and chaos. And we're probably called back once again to say, where, where am I going? I know when my dad was diagnosed with Alzheimer's, and for my mom and dad, that was a time you be, as they realized what was ahead. And later they, they shared, you know, we would have never chosen this, but we decided, Father, we're going to trust you through this difficult process. From time to time, we need to re, sort of renew that covenant commitment, right? But it's not a daily thing. We don't, we don't come back to this every day. We set the course, and we go on that course. But when we come to verse 2, along with that decisive part, now there's a daily, a daily part, a continual part that we've got to do every day. And it's a, continually re, a continual resistance and a continual persistence in something else. So our watchful resistance, point two, is do not be conformed to this world, Paul says. Now, why the warning here? Aren't we supposed to enjoy the world that God has made? After all, Psalm 24.1 says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God. This is a wonderful world. And then Paul says in 1 Timothy 4, he warns against a demonic asceticism. Okay? Because there were teachers in the church who were saying they were forbidding marriage, requiring abstinence from certain foods. And Paul goes on, these are foods that are created by God to be received with thanksgiving. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. So why this warning about being conformed to the world? Well, there are other verses as well. And you're probably familiar with many of them. For example, 1 John 2.15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. 2 Timothy 4, Paul talks about Demas, who had traveled with him, served the Lord with him. And he says, Demas, in love with the present world, has deserted me. And he didn't just move somewhere else. Demas apostatized. He left. That's sobering. And why? He was in love 
with the present world. In Mark 4, in the parable of the soils, Jesus says that the third soil, others are like seed sown among thorns. They hear the word, but the cares of this world. And the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things enter in and choke the word. So the cares of this world can choke out the fruitfulness of the word. James 4.4 says, Don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. It says, That friendship with the world is spiritual adultery. So these are very serious verses, right? So how do we think through this? It takes a lot of careful thinking. Now, in his book, uh, Worldliness, Resisting the Seduction of the Fallen World, uh, actually, C.J. Mahane didn't write the whole thing, but he edited it. In the foreword to that book, John Piper writes this, which is sort of summarize, summarizes some of these, this thought that we're wrestling with, okay? He says, C.J. Mahaney and his gang, as always, are in the business of applying the gospel. What does it look like when the blood of Christ governs the television and the internet and the iPod? Okay, they wrote this about 13 years ago, okay? And the checkbook and the neckline. Most people have never even asked the questions, let alone answered it. This band of gospel lovers is also in touch with the real challenges we face in music and movies and media and material possessions and modesty. They are writing as fellow strugglers in the world. They are eager for the church to enjoy the world, engage the world, evangelize the world, but they know that we will never be useful to the world if we are being deeply shaped by the world. We'll never be useful to the world if we're being deeply shaped by the world, and we will be shaped by the world without intentional efforts not to be. We will be shaped by the world around us without intentional efforts not to be. And then in defining worldliness, or we could say in defining what it looks like to be conformed to the world, C.J. writes this, Worldliness then is a love for this fallen world. It's loving the values and the pursuits of this world that stand opposed to God. More specifically, it's to gratify and exalt oneself to the exclusion of God. It rejects God's rule and replaces it with our own. It exalts our opinions above God's truth. It elevates our sinful desires for the fallen things of this world above God's commands and promises. So what does one need to do to be conformed to this world? Absolutely nothing, right? Nothing at all. It's like playing in the surf at Mustang Beach out on the Texas coast where we go and spend time with Carol's family. And so you're out, you know, go out into the water there and you're having a lot of fun. And then you look up trying to see where are they on the beach and think, man, where'd they go? What'd they move their stuff for? They didn't move, right? We're just having fun in the surf and found we're 200 yards, yards down, down the coast. That's what conformity the world is like we don't have to do anything to be conformed to this world we live in it it is it is always pressing on us always pushing us always shaping us
point three, and, and I'll sort of go back and forth probably between points two and three here. So point three, there's a persistent pursuit that is necessary, and that is to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. So we have these two, two commands, these two imperatives, don't be conformed, do be transformed. And don't be conformed, that's pressure from the outside. Again, as J.B. Phillips paraphrases it, he says, don't let the world around you squeeze you into its mold. Pressure from outside. Being transformed is power from inside working its way out, right? It's the power of Christ, the power of the Holy Spirit. And there are so many things we could say about this. What does it look like to be conformed to the world? How are our minds renewed? So let me just mention a couple things. And uh, then I want to give some examples of how uh, this can happen. Back in the Garden of Eden, at first there was only one voice, right? Adam and Eve knew only one other voice, God's voice. And then a second voice entered, the voice of the serpent, the voice of Satan. And now we have competing worldviews, right? We have truth of God, and now there's another voice communicating falsehood, deception, compromise, And so all through life, right, we're constantly dealing with probably not just two voices, but one voice of truth and then multiple voices of deception and mistruth. And so we've got to be aware, what what are we listening to? Who are our friends? Who are we hanging out with? What are we reading? Um, So often, these worldly voices or or these other worldviews, we're absorbing them and we're not even aware of it just because it's everywhere, right? It is the the water we swim in. It's the air we breathe. Now, if it were a direct assault, we'd probably recognize it. So if we turn on a movie or they say, you know what? Adultery is great. It's fun. Go do it. Divorce is wonderful decision. We'd say, no, I'm going to turn it off. That, that's not going to fool us. But when the main character is the beautiful, you fill in the blank, whoever that beautiful actress is, and her husband's a jerk, and he treats her terribly, and then she meets Mr. Right, and boy, he's respectful, treats her with kindness. And as the plot progresses, you got to know the story, right? True love blossoms. And then we're not quite so sure that divorce is really a problem or is adultery really that big a deal? I remember, I, I think I know the movie where this little shift in my, my thinking happened. Okay, and this dates me, but it is Rocky. Rocky and Adrian. Here are two people struggling. They meet their relationship, and, and there's a lot of things about their relationship that was really neat. But then they start living together. Okay, they're, they're fornicating. But it's like, is it really that bad? Beautiful. But that's how it happens, right? And we just start to question, are God's ways just little by little, the world is pressing on us, undermining And this happens in a hundred different ways, doesn't it? Probably every area of life, this happens. This is the battle we're in every day. 
And we're often not aware that the enemy is right in our living room. Or worse, he's right in my back pocket, right? I mean, his, his philosophies and worldviews are coming through every day right around us. I'm not saying get rid of this necessarily. Maybe. <laughs> not necessarily. But we've we got to recognize what is coming to us through everything around us, right? Sometimes when a friend, terrible things happen, a friend divorces or adultery breaks up a marriage, and then suddenly we start praying about spiritual warfare. Oh, oh, oh the enemy's attacking. Lord, we're under spiritual warfare. As if spiritual warfare just started when the adultery happened. It's not when it started. It's not when it started. It started way back when their thinking began to be conformed to the world, right? We suddenly start getting worried when someone goes over the falls. Well, the problem was two miles upstream when they started drifting toward the falls, right? You, you get the image? John Stott writes about this conflict between these two value systems. This world and God's will are incompatible, even in direct collision with one another. Whether we're thinking about the purpose of life or the meaning of life, about how to measure greatness or how to respond to evil, about ambition, sex, honesty, money, community, religion, or anything else, the two standards diverge so completely that there's no possibility of compromise. So part of our battle to resist conforming to the world and to be transformed is just to recognize there are many things that we cannot harmonize in the world's thinking. Now there are also, part of the, part of the trick here I think is um, Okay, sometimes, say, say you're listening to, all right, conservative talk radio, okay? And there are a number of things they can say that are true. For, for, for example, when, when, recent, when our president passed the, what do you call it, the presidential whatever, to forgive student loan debts, all right? And I'm thinking, and I am, I am angry. This, this is immoral. Just forgive these debts and make other people pay for them. It's immoral. It's unjust. It's foolish. It's destructive for our country. So, and so I think list hearing all that, that's a right response. But conservative talk radio stops there. And if I'm going to think biblically, if I stop there, you know what kind of person I end up? An angry Christian conservative. And I don't think... That's what being transformed looks like. So we've got to take that, that, okay, some of that perspective. There was truth spoken by that commentator about that issue. How do I put that into a bigger worldview, a biblical worldview, and think biblically? But you know what? My God governs that wrong decision, that unjust decision. So we've got to be careful not to equate, boy, this is, where, this is where many of us probably fail. We equate conservatism with a biblical worldview, right? 
So it's not just gross immorality where we get compromised, but with conservative perspectives, we can miss it and be conformed to a world that does not love and revere Christ. There's so much here that takes all kinds of careful thinking and encouragement and challenging one another in these things. So a couple thoughts here. How do we obey a passive imperative? Okay, both these commands are passive commands. Don't be conformed. Do be transformed. It doesn't say transform yourself. Paul doesn't, the Bible doesn't give us six steps that I can go out and transform myself or you can transform yourself, right? It's a passive imperative. It's got to be something that's done to you. But we're commanded to let something be done to us. How do we obey a passive imperative? Well, here are a couple thoughts on that. One is to position ourselves where the grace of God is likely to flow. God's got to do the transforming work, right? But I'm, I can position myself, you can position yourself to be where the flow of God's grace is likely to, to come and pray, Lord, would you do that transforming work? And so being in the word, likely place for God's grace to flow. Being at church, as you all are here this morning, likely place for God's grace to flow. Community group, praying. Humbling yourself before your wife, a likely place for God's grace to flow. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So we position ourselves to be transformed by putting ourselves where God's grace is flowing. And another way would be to think about a farmer. Can a farmer make his crops grow? He can't make his crops grow. But there are an awful lot of things he needs to do and better do if they are going to grow, right? He's got to plow, he's got to plant, he's got to pull weeds, um, fertilize and all that work. And then, not all but many, then you pray to God in heaven and say, God, would you now make, by your mercy, these crops grow. So there are things we can't do, but things we can do, position ourselves to receive God's transforming grace. Transformed into what? Conformity to the image of Christ. Romans 8.29, God has chosen us and saved us that we might be conformed into the image of Christ, to be like Christ. That's his goal in transformation. And how does he do it? Well, it's from the inside out, Paul says. It's by the renewing of our minds. And how does that renewal of our minds happen? You know, it's interesting. Paul doesn't explain that here. But just a reading of the New Testament or of the Bible, we know it's in two primary, two primary elements, the power of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God, God's Holy Spirit and God's Word. Almost everything that we want to happen in our lives, whether it's in our own lives, in our kids' lives, in our marriages, when we're praying for a friend, we can't make happen, Right? If it's something we can make happen, it's probably not that important. The things we really want are desperate to happen. We can't make happen. The Holy Spirit's got to do it. Only the Holy Spirit can change us. Only He can change our kids. Only He can restore a marriage. But that's His power. That's His transforming work. 
And he does it through the word. Jesus said to it, pray to his heavenly father, Father, sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. So we know it's by the Holy Spirit. We know it's through the word of God. And so renewing our minds, it doesn't merely mean adding more information. We can know the Bible stories. We can know where most of the books of the Bible are and not be transformed. It's not just wearing K. Russo shirts instead of Adidas and Aeropostale shirts. So we're not trying to put a Christian veneer on the outside of the same mindset that everybody, every one of our neighbors and friends at school has. It's a totally new worldview. It's a totally new renewal. It's looking at life, seeing all of life through the lens of Scripture. So let me give some simple examples of this renewing and transforming process. And these are things, and I think many of you, maybe every one of you could give examples like this, okay? But let's just, just think. It, this process, a lot of these, they're not rocket science. But they're simple things in our daily lives that can happen for every one of us. And you could give these as well. So I'm going to mention something in my own personal Bible reading, something from preaching, Aaron's sermon last week, and something else from a devotional book that Carol and I have been going through. So in my own personal Bible reading, a couple of weeks ago, I was in Second Chronicles and came across the story of Good King Asa. Any of you remember Good King Asa? And so Asa becomes king and does some remarkable, remarkable things. He's must have been a great administrator. So he's building the economy. He's strengthening the fortified cities. He's building up the military. All these things. He is a good and wise king. And it says of him that he did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord. And the Lord gave him peace. So he had peace for many years as he was doing all these things. But he's a busy, active king working for the flourishing of of Judah, okay, his nation. Well, then in in Second Chronicles chapter fourteen, the Ethiopians came up, and it says with an army of a million men came up against Judah, and Asa drew up his forces against them, and Asa cried out to the Lord his God, "O Lord, there is none like you to help between the mighty and the weak. Help us, O Lord our God, for we rely." Not on our military. We rely on you. And in your name we have come against this multitude. Oh Lord, you are our God. Let not man prevail against you. And the Lord defeated the Ethiopians before Asa. And Asa Asa and the people pursued them. And and they fell until none were alive. They just devastated. They were very active in battle, right? But where was their reliance? In the Lord their God. Then the Lord sends a prophet just to encourage him and say, keep, keep trusting the Lord. He'll be with you. And so Asa continues to get rid of the idols that were in the land. He even deposes the queen mother. He, he was a courageous king. He deposes the queen mother because she had set up an Asherah pole, a, an idol. And he says, you can no longer be queen mother if you're going to do this stuff. Very courageous. End of chapter 15 says, the heart of Asa was wholly true. All his days. 
and there was no more war until the 35th year of the reign of Asa. Chapter 16 starts out in the 36th year of the reign of Asa. Sort of little foreboding there, right? King Basha from the northern kingdom comes against him. And so these are Israelites fighting against each other. Israel against Judah, the northern kingdom against the southern kingdom. And you would think Asa, knowing what God had done for him all these years and how he had wiped out the Ethiopians, you'd think he would go on his knees immediately. But he doesn't. Picks up the phone and calls Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, and says, Hey, Ben-Hadad, remember we got this treaty? I want you to break your treaty with Basha. I'll give you all kinds of money and treasures and go and get on him so he leaves me alone. Ben-Hadad says, I'd be glad to take all the treasures out of your temple and out of your palace. Just send them down. He sends them down. Ben-Hadad comes to the Syrians and puts fights against King, king Basha in the northern kingdom. Basha withdraws. And Judah is safe again. It worked. But the prophet comes and says to him, because you relied on the king of Syria and did not rely on the Lord your God, the army of the king of Syria has escaped you. Weren't the Ethiopians a huge army with very many chariots and horsemen? Yet because you relied on the Lord, he gave them into your hand. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. Asa, you have done foolishly in this. From now on, you will have wars. You would think maybe Asa would humble himself. He was angry with the prophet, threw the prophet in jail. He, he inflicts pain on a lot of the people. And one other thing it mentions a couple years later, in his 39th year, Asa was diseased in his feet with a severe disease. Yet even in his disease, he did not seek the Lord, but sought help from physicians. It wasn't wrong to go to doctors. Right? But he did not seek the Lord, put his trust in physicians. And as I'm reading this, now, I'm not dealing with wars. At this point, I'm not dealing with the foot disease. But all of us are dealing with all kinds of things, right? Where we are making choices. We're probably putting confidence in things, right? So when we're sick and we go to the doctor, where is our confidence? It's such a reminder to me. Where, where do I put my hope? Where do you put your confidence? When you're thinking about retirement and the monies that you've set aside, I used to never think about this because I didn't have any money set aside. Now I'm concerned about what the stock market's doing. And when that happens, I realize, you know what? My trust is in the wrong place. Not bad. It's not wrong to put money away. It is wrong. It is sin for you and I to put our trust in those 401ks or our investment. That is sin. So here, just reading my Bible, okay? It's, it's normal reading. It's a story in the Old Testament. And it confronts us. What are we relying on? Are we relying on human solutions or on our omnipotent, all-loving Heavenly Father? That addresses a lot of areas in our life, right? What are we trusting in?
Last week, Aaron's message in Galatians 6, again, if you sow to the Spirit, you will from the Spirit reap eternal life. If you sow to the flesh, you're going to reap corruption. Boy, that's a challenge about all kinds of things in our life. So right now, looking ahead in my life, am I, am I just sowing for this life? Am I just sowing for, for retirement? Or am I sowing for eternity? We had a good discussion in community group thinking about all the different ways we, we sow and we reap. So sowing and reaping is one of these. How do I develop a renewed in our minds? Think about that. Okay, just simple. The preaching of the word brings that to us. Reading our Bible brings these things to us. God, God changes us. He renews our minds as we reflect on these things, right? As we talk about them together, community group. And the third one here. Actually, I, I do want to read a quote. I want to put the quote up. Aaron had this up last, last week. I just want to read it again. Such a helpful thing about preaching. The Bible is not designed, do you have that one? Okay, the Bible is not designed to give us a series of instant fixes. It is God's instrument to shape and mold my mind, renew our minds, our, our mind and character into the likeness of Christ, and that takes time. I need to listen to the Bible passage being preached today and to turn my heart to God in submission and trust today, not only because I may need that passage today, but because I may need that passage tomorrow, and tomorrow may be too late to learn it. This takes repetition and reminder. So we need not a random series of sermon fixes, but to sit together regularly, week by week, under the systematically preached word of God. And as we're taken through the teaching of the Bible by patient exposition, gradually, Christ-likeness is worked into our character, our affections, our desires, our decisions, and our lives. That, that's so helpful just for us as we think about preaching. There are times we walk away and the sermon hits a smack between the eyes, right? And there are other times, okay, that's, that's good. It is good. It's preparing us for something later. So just to sit under the preaching of the word, to regularly be in our own Bible reading. Not, not every time in my Bible reading, I, I think you all know, but not every time is glorious. Sometimes it's like, okay, but God is at work through the power of his word to renew our minds, to change our thinking. And then the third illustration here, um, about two or three times a week, Carol and I try to sit down after supper and just read, read a devotional together and pray together. It's not long, but just trying to do that. And, and so right now we've been reading through Dane Ortland's book on the Psalms. And this past week, I, I think it was Thursday night, we were on Psalm 51, David's confession about his sin with Bathsheba and then his murder of Uriah. And we're reading this. I mean, okay. And, and then Carol made the comment, David, David wrote this psalm for public use in the temple. I don't think I've published, published any, of my pray, or any of my sins for public use, but that's how much he valued the forgiveness of God. And in Psalm 51, he says, have mercy on me, O God according to your steadfast love. Adultery, murder, cover-up. 
Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from sin. For I know my transgression. My sin is ever before me. Psalm goes on. He says, Lord, purge me and I'll be clean. Wash me. Let me hear joy and gladness again. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God. You will not despise. And then Dane Ortland writes this. He says, who among us does not know the need to go to Psalm 51 and make it ours? Isn't that right? David prayed this psalm after committing adultery with Bathsheba, but his words and heart of repentance are universally relevant to all who feel the weight of their sin. It's such good news for us. Do you feel dirty? The good news of the gospel is that you can be rinsed clean. David pleads for God to have mercy on him. Is this an empty, hopeless plea? By no means. David goes on, according to your steadfast love, have mercy on me. David is asking for God to be who he is. He's asking God to act in a way that is consistent with himself. David knows God is a God of abundant mercy. So he asks for mercy accordingly. Is this who you know? God to be? Is this who I know God to be? Is this who you know yourself to be? Do you know yourself to be dirty, a sinner? All that God asks of you is to bring the sacrifice of a broken and contrite heart. He gave his own son as the final sacrifice that your brokenness could be the only prerequisite to receiving his abundant mercy. Amid your dirtiness, amid my dirtiness, we are free to breathe again because God is a God of abundant mercy and he proved it in Jesus. That is who he is. In Christ, you are rinsed clean, invincibly permanent, irreversibly clean. We read things like that. It changes us, right? That's not how I always think about God. I think, man, God, are you just tolerating me? And then I read this. I read Psalm 51 and say, wait, wait a minute. God is totally different toward me than I tend to think. And that's why we need the renewing of our mind regularly. Personal Bible reading, church, community group, talking with one another, reading a good devotional. All these things are just ways that this can happen. Leanne, if you and... Sophia will come back up. We're going to sing in a minute. Do you remember Demas? What was the root cause of his defection? What is the root issue in our being conformed to this world? Demas loved this present world. So if love of the world is at the root problem of being conformed to the world... Doesn't that also indicate what is at the root of being transformed? Okay, if love of the world is the problem, then what we need more than anything else is a love for Christ, to see him, to treasure him, to delight in him, right? Our Christian life is not essential list of procedures and expectations and protocols. It's a relationship with the greatest and most beautiful and wonderful person in the universe. Jesus Christ. 
And like any close relationship, think about your closest friend or someone you love dearly. Did that relationship come about by a checklist? Once a week, I'll drop over maybe from 10 to 11.30 and interact a bit. Yeah, Got to be sure to read those emails and texts, but man, sometimes they're boring. Our affections, that's not how relationships work. Our affections move us uh, to, to push other things out of the way so we can give as much time and focus to this person we love, to be with them, to know them, to find out what pleases them. We yearn for them when they're away because, because we love this person. They're a dear friend. And so as we close, would you ask God, ask God by his Holy Spirit to give you a fresh hunger to love Christ, to love his word, an appetite for his word, and then to set aside regular time, not merely to read this book, to be with Christ. 2 Corinthians 3.18, and we'll close with this verse. We all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, that's Jesus, right? Beholding the glory of Jesus, we are being transformed into that same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Heavenly Father, would you give us, would you Show us Christ. Give us a love for him, a treasuring him that helps us to put other things aside and say no to other things that we might see him and treasure him. Do that in our hearts, we pray in Jesus. Let's stand and sing a closing song.